0: This morning, we're starting a new sermon series in the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's called The Faithful Skeptic, The Faithful Skeptic, Ecclesiastes for Modern People. I'm very uh, excited about this series, um, and I'd uh, like to talk a little bit about ice sculptures made from chainsaws. Have you ever seen someone take a, take a chainsaw and, uh, and create a beautiful ice sculpture with it? Every year in Fairbanks, Alaska, there's a world championship for the best uh, sculptures made from chainsaws. They're incredibly beautiful. What happens is that the artist revs up a chainsaw, uh, and they, they just hack away at the block of ice. They saw through big lumps of, of, of ice and uh, sending chips flying in every direction. If you don't know what they're doing, it seems like indiscriminate and destructive. Yet when they're finished, their masterpiece takes the breath away. It was like, how did you create this beautiful piece of art with a chainsaw and with so much destruction? Uh, In the book of Ecclesiastes, the the teacher, uh, sometimes known as the preacher, takes the chainsaw of skepticism and he saws through and chips away at so much that we think we need. He chips away at our New Year's resolutions. He saws through all of our expectations of life. Uh, He uh, he saws through and he chips away at some of our vain ambitions and the things that we think will save us. He saws away at all the pleasant half-truths that we believe. He saws away at all the pleasures that would enslave us. And all of the anxieties and all the regrets and all of the boredom that comes from giving ourselves to these things. And what remains after he's done? What remains after the author of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, the teacher of Ecclesiastes is done? We have an ice sculpture before us. We have a beautiful masterpiece before us, which is the fear of God in the present moment. It just takes our breath away when all the things that we put our faith in and all the things that caused us anxiety, all the things that took us away from the present moment that made us preoccupied and anxious and worried and excited, when all of that's taken away, what are we left? In the present moment, we're left with the fear of God. We're left with overflowing gratitude for God and his gifts. And we realize that, oh my goodness, I didn't even know it, but I'm living inside a miracle. I'm living inside God's creation. I'm living before the presence of a holy God. We're studying Ecclesiastes not only because we need the teacher of the book to take the chainsaw of faithful skepticism, to cut away at all that doesn't belong, but we also, too, need to learn how to hold that chainsaw for ourselves. We need to learn. This is part of discipleship we need to learn faithful skepticism as well. Even outgoing, optimistic, goal-oriented people like myself need Ecclesiastes and need to hold the chainsaw of skepticism. Um, Here's why. Do you know that uh, I saw recently that we see on average, see or hear about 4,000 advertisements a day? And do you know what those advertisements do? They're, They're offering us promises, most of which are aren't true at all or or at the very least half true. They pass themselves off as truth. They pass themselves off as as self-evident conventional wisdom. But they'll they'll lead us astray. They'll They'll get us revved up in the wrong way. They play to the deep desires of our heart. And we need to know how to take the chainsaw of faithful skepticism and just buzz through those promises. And know that's not from God and that is not from me. Um, Ecclesiastes helps us deconstruct the lies that come at us every day, um, that take an active resistance if we're going to fear God in this life. Um, we need to take the chainsaw and cut through hype, cut through quick fixes, cut through false ideas that pass themselves off as true or helpful. Um, And on the other hand, we need to direct our skepticism in the right way because you and I are invited to direct our cynicism in the wrong direction. You and I, in this culture, are taught to direct our cynicism at God and direct cynicism at God's servants and people who come into our life who speak truth that is hard Um, But if we direct our skepticism indiscriminately, if we're just cynical about everything, we'll be left with nothing. We will be left just pessimistic, just negative, just cynical and alone. We'll never learn true wisdom. The chainsaw of skepticism is powerful, and it can be used for good. It can be used for bad. We need to learn how to use it like the preacher, like the teacher in Ecclesiastes uses it so that it leaves us in the fear of God. It leaves us with a sense of gratitude. It leaves us in the present moment, savoring the best of God and the best of the life that he's given us. Um, So let's look at our first uh, chunk of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 1. We're looking at the quest for progress. Can our generation change the world? And here's what verse 1 tells us. Uh, verse 1 of Ecclesiastes 1 tells us that these are the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, who is this preacher? Who is this, as uh, some translated teacher, he leaves his uh, identity somewhat mysterious. He actually doesn't pinpoint exactly who he is. Um, he calls himself uh, the son of David or the the. the The writer calls the preacher the son of David, king in Jerusalem, but he's not given a proper name. This could refer to Solomon. Solomon was one of David's sons who did reign in Israel during the golden era. Um, And um, Solomon's life experience is certainly reflected in the pages of Ecclesiastes. Power, wealth, the accumulation of servants. Yet in the second half of chapter 1, this preacher talks about His time as a king in the past tense, as if someone had taken his place before he died. And it's hard to imagine Solomon doing that. Um, And in other parts of the book, in Ecclesiastes 4 and 8, he's speaking from the perspective of um, a servant, not a king. So it could be Solomon, but there's reasons to think maybe it's not Solomon, even from the text itself. Um, The teacher could be one of David's later sons who ruled in Jerusalem after the exile was over. Um, At the end of the day, I think what the author of Ecclesiastes wants us to see him as is a Solomon-like individual, a Solomon-like king who's extraordinarily successful. Uh, One pastor likens this book to the autobiography of the most successful person who's ever lived, the autobiography of the most successful person in the world, and it's written at the end of his life with all of the choice lessons. In this autobiography, he describes how he achieved the best life has to offer, beauty and pleasure and success and wisdom. And yet, this seemed to break his heart at the end of the day, all of these things, because he couldn't grasp these things. He achieved them, but he didn't quite achieve them because you can never achieve any of these things fully. And in the process, he learned reality. This is one of the reasons why successful people on the other end of the success, relates so much with Ecclesiastes. Um, The great novelist Thomas Wolfe said of the book, Ecclesiastes is the single piece of writing, the greatest single piece of writing I have ever known, and the wisdom expressed in it is the most lasting and profound. Uh, Herman Melville, author of Moby Dick, called Ecclesiastes the truest of all books. The truest of all books. So who is the teacher? He's been extraordinarily successful. He's coming to the end of his life. And um, he speaks some hard-earned wisdom to all of Israel and all of humanity, anyone who will listen. Um, So here's what the teacher says about reality. Here's what he wants to reveal to us, verse 2. Verse 2, what does he want to say? Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now, the word here for vanity is the Hebrew word uh, hevel. Hevel. How do we translate this word hevel? Um, I think it's best to translate this word hevel as vapor. Vapor. One scholar translates verse 2 like this. The merest of breaths, says Koholet, meaning teacher. The merest of breaths. Everything is a breath. So what is Hevel? What is a vapor? A vapor is the part of life that is ungraspable and eludes our mastery. It's an ungraspable part of reality. That's what a vapor is. Uh, Have you ever been walking down the street and gotten a whiff of some really aromatic pipe smoke or cigar smoke? Am I the only one in here who appreciates some good whiffs of Pipe tobacco smoke. You know, you look over and there's a there's an older gentleman with like a tweed you know jacket, puffing away, looking at you, Uh, and and just the smell of the scene and the richness sort of breaks your heart. Um, so I've enjoyed um, some pipe tobacco in my life, full (laughs) confession, and uh, and in some ways, why did I smoke a pipe? Why did I buy it? Why did I buy the pipe tobacco? I bought it because I wanted to take in the vapor. I wanted, to, I wanted that smell that was so aromatic and good. I wanted to taste it more fully. And so in order to do that, I tried stuffing the tobacco just right and lighting it just right and puffing away, and I'm not doing it right, and I have to relight it. And all that it left me, all that it left me was singed fingertips, singed taste buds, puffing and puffing and puffing. And the teacher says, "All of life is like that. All of reality is like that. You get a whiff of it. You get a whiff of pleasure, but then you try to go after it. You try to grasp it. You try to take it in, and it like doesn't satisfy. A success is like that. You get a taste of success. You start going after it. Going after it. You're like, I want more of this, and all that it's left you with is singed fingertips and puffing away." And, and exerting yourself, trying to get to something you can't quite grasp. Love and friendship is like this. You're like, oh, this is going to be a good friendship, or oh, this is a great love interest, and you go further after it and further after it, and you just, it, it, you can't grasp it. It it's, uh, sort of is a moment that passes. Even when it lasts, it eventually passes. All of life, the teacher says, is a vapor, fleeting and beautiful and ungraspable. If you try to master it, you'll just wear yourself out puffing away. If you try to understand it intellectually, you'll burn your fingertips. If you try to take that vapor and internalize it into your being, you'll just scorch your taste buds. Everything is a vapor. You know what it's better to do? It's better to let that moment where you smell the, the, you smell the vapor of the pipe smoke and it's beautiful and you see the older gentleman and just enjoy it and just thank God for it. That's what the teacher wants us to do. Now, some of us have gotten a whiff of progress, and it smells hopeful. We've smelled progress, maybe in our personal life. We've advanced, we've gotten into a good school, we've gotten uh, on a great career track. Maybe we're talented at something. Maybe we we feel like we're we're good at something, We're, we're winning at something, Maybe mentors have encouraged us to keep going, keep going further in life. And, and we think, man, I love the personal progress and the up and up advancement. I love life improvement. Let's keep this empowerment going. Or maybe we, we smelled progress in society, like technology that makes things easier. There's an app for everything. We can call our friends around the world for free and talk to them via video chat. We can find the best sushi near my location. Or maybe we've smelled progress in making history as movements for freedom and justice gain momentum around the world and around us. Maybe we've gotten that whiff of progress from reading an inspirational biography or watching a hard-hitting documentary and we're like, the world's changing and I wanna be a part of it. Progress smells good, progress smells hopeful. The world is changing and we're progressing, so let's change the world. And here's the question that the teacher asks us right off the bat. Verse three, here's the question that the teacher asks us before we get too far down the road of progress. Verse three, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What does man gain by all the toil at which he or she toils under the sun? Now, the word gain here carries the sense of like leftover accumulated at the end of the day stuff. that that you're left with uh, some advantage in your life, in your bank account, in your resume, that you didn't have before, something that represents progress, something that represents gain. Um, The teacher asks us, in all your striving for personal progress, in all your striving for societal progress, what gains have you truly made? Where's the leftover? Um, So before we answer that question, the, the teacher zooms out Uh, from our life experience and our moment. And he places humanity in the grand sweep of history and of creation. And he paints a picture that's different than the picture we would want to paint with our life in verse four. Here's the zoom out picture. A generation comes, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun (coughs) rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. What's the teacher saying? He's saying, hey, look, generations of people appear, and then they disappear. The sun rises in the morning and falls at night, and then it gets ready to rise again. Okay, and just complete, it just goes over and over and over, just like the generations coming and going. The wind, oh, my goodness, the wind is going all over the world. It's a world-traveling wind. I mean, it's going east and west. It's going north and south and blowing and going everywhere. It's so impressive, but then what does it do? It returns to the place where it started. All of that represents a tremendous output of energy. I mean, a generation rising is a tremendous output of energy, but then a generation Going is a tremendous output of energy. And then the sun, I mean, the blazing sun going up and then going down, all that gravity, all that physics, the wind going everywhere. I mean, it's just like so much energy is expended, but what does it get you? Here's the one that gets me. Here's the part of what the teacher's saying that really breaks my heart, and it's in verse 7. All streams run into the sea. And then here's the punchline. The sea isn't full. All the, all, I mean, all the streams that are just rushing into the sea. Have you ever been to Niagara Falls and seeing, like, the, the transfer of one body of water to another body of water? I mean, all that energy. But, like, uh, last time I heard, Lake Erie is not full. The teacher is bordering on mockery for anyone who believes in progress. Verse eight drives home the point. All things are full of weariness. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear with hearing. So what's the teacher saying? The teacher's saying, in short, that we've chased after progress and achieved exhaustion. We've chased after progress, and where has it gotten us? What's the gain? What's the advantage? Exhaustion. That's what you get. You're just like the white water rushing into the sea. The sea doesn't really fill up, um, but, but you've expended lots of energy. We're like those rivers. We're like the sun. We're rising in the morning with hope, and then only to set and get tired in the evening, only to do it over again. We're like the wind jet setting around the world with fury and purpose only to return to where we started. And where did it get you? Where did all the world travel get you? Last week, uh, Anne Helen Peterson published a widely shared article on BuzzFeed News called How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. Have you seen this on Twitter? How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. Uh, Peterson is attempting to answer the question, Why have the basic tasks of life become nearly impossible for so many in her generation? And one of Peterson's insights is that from early on, the millennial generation has been, and I'm quoting now, trained, tailored, primed, and optimized for the workplace. The millennial generation has been trained, tailored, primed, and optimized for the workplace from childhood. Seeking employment that reflects well on your parents, employment that is impressive to your peers, and work that you're passionate about. Um, And uh, she says this, we didn't try to break the system, we tried to win the system. And how did they try to win it? Perfect grades, okay, working all the time, full-time jobs and side hustles and resume builders. Okay, Personal brand management. Via social media, which is now integrated into your job search. And constant self-optimization in search of your best self. Your best self. And where does all that get you? Where does all that work get you? Um, In Peterson's words, she says, it got me this. The feeling of accomplishment that follows an exhausting task never comes. The feeling of accomplishment that follows an exhausting task never comes. And she cites psychoanalyst Josh Cohen, who says this, the exhaustion experienced in burnout combines an intense yearning for the state of completion with the tormenting sense that it cannot be attained, that there is always some demand, that there is always some anxiety or distraction which can't be silenced. You feel burnout when you cannot free yourself of the nervous compulsion to go on regardless that's what burnout is. You always feel like you're supposed to be accomplishing something. And at one point, she says, in grad school, she adopted this mantra, everything bad is good. Everything good is bad, meaning everything good, enjoying the moment, is bad. But everything bad, working until you're exhausted, is good, because that's what will get you what you're, where you're supposed to go. What is Peterson doing? She's putting into words, into contemporary words, these 3,000-year-old bits of insight from the preacher who says, all streams run into the sea, but but it's never full. The work's never done. You're never quite optimized. The, The next generation spent all this energy to optimize themselves into the perfect life, Yet now the basic tasks of life, like registering to vote, are like out of reach, there's nothing left. Now what about progress in society, you say? Life is better for us than in previous generations. There's been advancement in medicine, in technology, in infrastructure, scientific knowledge and application. These are all good things, just like personal progress are good things. So how are we to understand these verses which seem to say the opposite? Verse nine, um, the teacher says this, what has been is what will be and what has been done is what will be done and there is nothing new under the sun. Verse 10, is there a thing of which it is said? See, this is new. It has uh, been already in the ages before us. Now, when we read these verses, it's like, Well, maybe that was true 3,000 years ago, but they haven't seen anything yet. I mean, there was no Steve Jobs 3,000 years ago. Um, You know, the teacher couldn't have foreseen the Renaissance or the Industrial Revolution, let alone the information age. Oh, my goodness, all the new knowledge and all the new technology and all the new advancements. But even the teacher himself made new things. In chapter 2, he talked about a new irrigation system that he engineered And uh, irrigated his trees with. So he created, he himself created new things. And he tells us about it in chapter two. Um, So here's what he's doing. He's writing a poem and he's doing what poets do, which is they overstate their case in order to make a point. Um, Human beings always have and always will create new things. But here's what the teacher's saying. Where does it get you? Where does it get you? Where has it gotten us? Where have the advancements gotten us? There's been a lot of good things. Um, Where did the teacher's irrigation systems get, get him? Well watered trees, but like, did that satisfy the desires of his heart? It didn't. We think they will. It didn't give him meaning, purpose, freedom, or connection. It didn't gain him the most important things that all humans want. It just gave him new means and that is true in our day. French philosopher Jacques Ellul brings the point home when he says this. The first great fact which emerges from our civilization, he's talking broadly about the modern age, is that today everything has become means. Everything has become means. There is no longer an end. We do not know whither we are going. He continues, we have forgotten our collective ends, and we... Pro- Possess great means we set huge machines in motion in order to arrive nowhere. What gains have we made as a species with our technology? Has it helped us gain meaning and purpose and connection and freedom? Let's talk about Steve Jobs for a minute. He set out to change the world. He talked about it all the time. Do You want to sell soda water? You want to sell sugar water? Or you want to change the world? That's what how he recruited one of his top executives. And he certainly did that, didn't he? Okay? By giving us this little device. He changed the world, did he not? Um, and, it's, and it's so impressive, these smartphones, these little computers. I can talk to my friend in Germany just right now. I can FaceTime him. I'm not going to. Um, but, but to what end? Has this changed our life for the better? I want you to think about that because this did change the world. And to a certain extent, this is new. See, this is new. Um, Here's uh, what Jean Twenge says in her Atlantic essay, um, have smartphones destroyed a generation. Um, She says, the arrival of the smartphone has radically changed every aspect of teenagers' lives, from the nature of their social interactions to to their mental health. These changes have affected young people in every corner of the nation and every type of household where there are cell towers, there are teens living their lives on their smartphones. Rates of teen depression and suicide have skyrocketed, she says, since 2011. 48% more girls say they felt left out in 2015 than in 2010, compared with 27% more boys who say the same thing. She says it's not an exaggeration to describe iGen uh, as being on the brink of, listen, the worst mental health crisis in decades. Much of this deterioration can be traced back to our phones. Now look, it's easy to dunk on Steve Jobs, isn't it? And it's easy to dunk on smartphones. Um, I have a smartphone and I use it every day. um, So I readily admit my own hypocrisy in talking about this, okay? Here's the point. Where has it gotten us? Where has it gotten us? We can find the best sushi near my location, but, our, but we feel left out. What do we need more? The best sushi life has to offer at the lowest price or friendships? Have we, have we truly progressed or have we worn ourselves out on the means and forgotten our ends? Verse 8 again, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. And you know what? That's exactly how I feel when I've been on my phone too much. The teacher has been taking a chainsaw to our self congratulation in chapter 1. So much toil, so little gain. He saws off our expectations for personal progress he chips away at our hopes for societal progress. Any hope we had of gain, of a balance sheet in the black, he says, that'll just wear you out. You'll just be like another gallon of water heading over Niagara Falls. Um, And even verse 11, he says, there's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. So like, what's your great-grandmother's name? And I mean, that's your great-grandmother. Will your great-granddaughter remember you? I mean, we don't even see each other anymore. We feel lonely and less connected now, and we're alive now. What about three, four generations? What will come of our world change then? Um, and this is where the philosopher came. Finally puts down his chainsaw, OK. And now we get a chance to look at the masterpiece. He's, it's not a block of ice. It's the philosopher King who is also your friend and your savior. And he loves you and he cares about you and he cares about your life and this cultural moment more than you know. And here is his invitation. He says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus invites us to exchange our striving for Sabbath. Now, that is another religious rule, but to deliver us from burnout and exhaustion and futility under the sun and to give us the progress we and our world need the most. Sabbath is a day or even a few hours a day to begin where we stop our paid and unpaid striving and drink in the love of God for us, which is there for us no matter how far we've progressed or not. Sabbath is an opportunity to delight in God just to take a moment and delight in God and delight in his creation. I mean, the beautiful sun that's rising and falling, the beautiful rivers, the be- the, even the wind, and just say, thank you, God. Instead of mocking us, creation can teach us, can teach us to rejoice in our creator in the present moment. And, and, and to say, yes, the kingdom of God is here. It's filling my life with love and power. And I don't have to earn it at all. The world is a miracle. We can finally see that the world is a miracle, that our life, that we're living in a miracle given to us by the king of the universe who's got everything in his hands. He's got our life in his hands. He's got our hopes in his hands. On the Sabbath, we can entrust to Father all of the unknowns of our life, all the hopes of our life, On the Sabbath, we can relax, okay, and let God change the world. Sabbath is a a taste of the revolution that's currently in progress, all right? It's a revolution of love. It's the kind of revolution we've been hoping for, the true revolution which is brought about by a well-rested savior leading a well-rested people. Think about this. Think about all that Jesus got done in three years. All right? He defeated death, sin, and futility in three years. Come on now. He fulfilled all of God's promises to Israel. I mean, thousands of years of promises. He fulfilled them in three years. Look, in three years, Jesus went from leaving his mom and dad's house to starting a revolution that turned the world inside out, that now includes billions of people. He did it all while wearing the easy yoke of his father. And by grace, he invites us to slip under that easy yoke ourselves, be free of futility. Even when we return to our labors, paid or unpaid, we find that God, God himself is present and active and breaking into our world, making all things new. See, God is ready, he's ready, he's waiting for us to ask for it, to fill our world with hope and power and true progress. God's love begins to define our present moment. Listen, that's what Jesus accomplished in three years. What could God do through us? More than we can ask or imagine, I'll tell you that. One day we will be staggered to learn all that God did us through us to bring his kind of progress to our life and to the world. One day it will stagger us to know what he accomplished through us. Do you want to change the world without breaking it in the process? Do you want to give your best efforts without burning out? Do you want to be set free from chasing a vapor, released from just like the meaningless toil of life? Do you want to stop the crazy thinking of everything good is bad and everything bad is good? Come to Jesus and receive his easy yoke. He's the masterpiece left over when the teacher is finished with his chainsaw. So let him take your breath away and give you back your life. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.